Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. All right, welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Eric Woodski. Today's episode is really exciting for me. Not only is it the flagship episode of Ecobolic Radio, but I get to sit down with coach and former traveling partner, Ryan Fanley. Ryan Fanley was a member of the U.S. Air Force before moving into the NCAAs as a strength and conditioning coach and eventually the private sector. Ryan and I met while traveling for the Poliquin Group where we taught his international lectures on the topics of sports performance, supplements and nutrition, prehab, rehab. Ryan is a wealth of knowledge in all areas of strength and conditioning, as well as life with his experiences from the military to professional sport. So I really look forward to picking his brain on a number of different topics, from the psychology of online personal training to the use of peptides and steroids and the positives and negatives of how that affects the online personal training world. Without further ado. Hey, man. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Man, it's... <laughs> we just said we just said we were gonna fuck this up and right out of the gate. We're totally uh, I, no I, talk all over you. Go ahead. Uh, you're making it you're making me sound really old, saying it's been decades, but I guess it has. Um, holy shit, it's been a long time, eh? Yeah, it has. Like when I think back on it, because I'm in fourth. Let's see, I'm in my fourth year with the princess in Saudi Arabia, and then I was with the Poliquin Group for about eight or nine months after you moved on to other stuff. So right. when we go back to when we were traveling in like the UK and Sweden and the United States and Canada, I mean, we're going back like six years. Yeah, totally, man. Good times. Yeah, it was good times. Now, a lot of people that may be listening don't realize that you have a very long and pretty complex background before you ever got into strength and conditioning and what we'd think of as the private sector or fitness sector. You were Correct. a member of the U.S. Air Force, and Correct. then from there you went to university and were a strength coach in the NCAAs at Miami of Ohio. So yep. just sort of walk us through that initial phase of your life, you know, post-high school, into your service for the United States, and then how that translated into being a strength and conditioning coach. Sure. Well, first of all, I always loved training. Um, I know a lot of people, they go to college and they have no clue what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, that was not me at all. I knew from like age 12 on that I wanted to do something to do with training. It's all started for me because I played basketball and I was obsessed with like increasing my vertical jump. So I had a little like weight set with sand and I would do squats, really shitty squats. Uh, and I would jump around and do plyometrics and all that. And I loved it and it was so effective for me and I knew I wanted to do that. Um, so after high school, um, I was kind of torn in high school because I had some offers for, for some small Division I schools and Division II schools to play basketball. But I also knew I wanted to be in the military. So I ended up going one year to college and then enlisted in the military and was pulled out of school for, to do all my basic training and all that. And then I finished my degree while serving in the Air Force. And my degree was in exercise physiology. Um, then from there, it was, it was one of those things. I went to be an intern in the collegiate weight room um, at Miami University. And at the time, my first boss, his name was Dan Dalrymple. He's now currently the head coach for the New Orleans Saints, the head strength coach. 
Um, so he's got Super Bowl rings now, which is crazy to me. But he was my first boss. And um, I was interning for him, and we were sitting in the office one day, and ESPN was on, and I said, Sean Payton announced as head football coach for the New Orleans Saints. And he looks up, and he's like, I'm probably going to be getting a phone call about this. And sure as shit, 20 minutes later, Sean Payton was on the phone inviting him down to be his new head strength coach for the Saints. And so from there, it was like I was graduating. I had been interning for a year. My boss got the head job. And it was one of those things, the timing was just perfect for me to step in um, as the assistant strength coach. And then from there, just working there, I worked my ass off, got promoted uh, eventually to assistant head. Um, And then from there is when I was sitting one day and Charles Poliquin gave me a ring. I had met him, I think, in, met him in 2007. And we had talked a little bit, but nothing serious. And then in 2011, he called me and said, hey, I need you to come work for me. Um, and so that's when you and I linked up, um, in, in Rhode Island and, and around the world. Well, that, it's really interesting. And I want to take a step back, if you don't mind, in terms of when you look at the current trend with social media today, and we have these two or three different areas that have become really, really successful in terms of marketing. And this is something that I've always found very interesting with my relationship with you is you had a very commendable military career. But of all the people I've ever met, including special forces, uh, basic infantry, etc., you've always kept your military career very hush-hush. And I know mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, it's probably personal, some of which I know from our speaking that you're just not someone to brag about your military service, let alone you also take it very seriously that things that you were working with were quite top secret. But the question that I've always had, and by no means is this going to really blow open the secret files of the U.S. military, but I know that you were, <laughs> you were quite high up in the Air Force. And I, and I think I want to know, as well as a lot of the people that are listening, is two things. One – does Air Force One have an escape pod for the president? <laughs> and two, are there aliens under the Denver airport? Oh, yes and yes. Fuck. Well, I'm screwed now. See, Oh, shit. I got I to go. The CIA beating down my door. I'm arrested. <laughs> that's exactly it, right? And it is funny, though, because we've talked a lot about your military background, and you got to do some really incredible things, which I think when I look back on what you talked about from learning the intricacies of knife fighting, which most people don't think of as an Air Force officer, as well as a lot of like deep depth scuba diving. So you really sort of encompass the personality of somebody that wanted to maximize your opportunities to learn new skill. And I think when we finally met at the Poliquin Group, it was sort of that adventurous mentality that you carried with you from that lifestyle into the coaching lifestyle that allowed you to be such a good instructor on that next stage because you could pull these experiences from your own life and your ability to teach complex patterns and movements to people that were very green. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that when I look back now, uh, as you know, the internet is producing people that maybe aren't of much substance because there's no way to get to know a person that those are the skills that sort of separate the high level coaches 
like your coach that you had, your mentor, and the low-level coaches that are just trying to squeeze a buck out of the industry. Right. You know, it's one of those things, Derek. The military for sure was good in that teaching regard because here's the fact of the matter. There are a lot of dumb motherfuckers that join the military, right? Like they, now, now, granted, basic training gets it out of them, okay? But coming in, there's a lot of people that are just, you know, they're not the brightest bulb on the, <laughs> they're not the brightest, uh, the brightest at all. And so they, like the way the military teaches you skills, it's very step by step. So like they almost don't let you screw it up. It's so detailed and so specific that even the dumbest motherfucker in basic training will graduate being able to do it. Right, okay. Right. And so I carried that a great deal into my coaching with athletes. It's like when you look at a movement, sometimes you have to break it down to its most simple, rudimentary, step-by-step form to get it to work correctly. And, and that's kind of what I did, uh, when working with athletes a lot. Um, and of course I had great mentors too. coach, coach Dalrymple, coach D this is a freak of a man. He was, he was a offensive lineman. He played at like 330 pounds. Um, he was, he was a, just a large, one of those old man strength guys. Right. I'll never forget <laughs> one time I was in the office and he let me look through his old training journals from back when he played. He, he had a short stint in the NFL, but n- not much. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm looking at his training journals and I noticed when he benched, he always did. He worked up real heavy. He'd do like five, four, three, two, one, 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 one. Right. But then on squat day, it was always like three sets of 15 to 20. And I was like, Coach D, I don't understand. Like, why, why did you go super heavy on the bench? But on squat day, it was always sets of 15 to 20. And he's like, well, the gym I trained at only had 600 pounds of free weights. So I had to do 15s and 20s on the squat. And I'm just like. Oh, like just a freak of a human being, right? Um, <laughs> like, how, like it's asinine, right? Like the kind yes. of strength, the, the strength that he had, and he it was never a big deal to him. Like he never thought he was like this badass, but he absolutely was. There was one time uh, the team was in doing snatches, hang snatches, right? And this kid goes up with, and he had two hundred pounds on the bar, uh, or you know, a red and a green Olympic plate, so one ninety eight. And uh, he goes to do snatches, and he goes to strap in with wrist straps. And and my boss, Coach D, said, "Hey, no straps today. We want to, you know, we want to train the grip." And the kid's words were, "But you can't do this much weight without straps." And and Dan, completely cold, like he didn't warm up. He didn't spend thirty minutes going to fucking foam roll or do yoga or anything like that. Completely cold, walked over, one hand on the barbell, one hand snatched. 200 pounds, pressed it two or three times with the one hand, spun around in a circle, slammed it on the ground, called the kid a pussy, and motherfucked him out of the weight room. Like, <laughs> like that's like Judd Logan strength, right? Like, yes, yes, absolutely. It, it, you know, and and a lot of people don't see a lot of people nowadays don't believe these stories because of the fake weight Instagram genre that we're in, you know, guys that are putting right. literally famous Instagram folks that are putting fake 45s on barbells and leg presses. People forget 
that guys like Richard Soren, Judd Logan, your coach, some of these old-time strongmen, Bill Kazmaier, for example. Um, right. Jeff Nichols tells me an amazing story about Bill Kazmaier when he was 13 or 14, not realizing that 315 was on a bar on a bench and just being able to bench it. Um, yeah. You know, people forget in our our generation now, and it's not like they don't exist nowadays. They absolutely do. But people think that strength and conditioning at that level sort of started yesterday and not 30 years ago or 40 years mm-hmm. ago. And there's this generation of old-timey strength people that are exceptional, but we never were able to capture these moments because we we didn't have the technology. You know, and, and I know there's a mm-hmm. funny T-shirt out there that says, you know, I was strong before the internet. And it's very true. There, there is a generation gap in terms of, of strength and conditioning. And, it, and it's guys like that that I think instilled certain principles into a generation of coaches that if we're lucky, we can continue that legacy, but it's starting to get a little thin. Yeah. Oh, it's hard, man. Yeah, with Instagram and these instant celebrities, man, it's, it's really thinning out. And people like that are just harder and harder to come by. I mean, the, the, everything he did, it was never a, it was never to show off. It was never to get people to click a little button to like. It was to, to motivate a kid. A little ego. Right. It was to motivate yeah. a kid that no one will ever hear the story unless you just told it to pull his head out of his ass and be a better human being. Exactly. And he did it. That's what he did. Right. And, and, and and that's the thing that people have to understand is like these old stories are these stories that people don't often hear. They were done in the heat of the moment because someone believed that it was going to be the ignition switch to somebody's success. Exactly. And And it wasn't always positive, right? (laughs) Exactly. It, It was not always, uh, unicorns and rainbows Mm -mm. and another side of this Derek that I think people miss everyone looks for like the secret program or the sets and the reps and and what what kind of workout is so-and-so doing and what they lose is that the art of coaching that takes place with elite level coaches and it's um it's something and, and it's the motivation it's the coaching the details of the movement and, and just the professionalism that these top-level coaches exist. I was uh, last weekend. I spent some time with Eddie Cohn and Stu McGill and Stan Efferding. They had a seminar and, and just talking with them. And you know the exercise, the bird dog. You know where you're down on all fours Absolutely. and like extend. Okay, so watching Stu McGill coach the bird dog is it's one of the most insanely it's just an awesome experience because he is so elite and so good at what he does. And it's one of those things, so many people would glance at a program and say, ah, bird dog. And they would just blow right past it because they would think it's easy or think it's not important. But if you look at the level of detail and professionalism that Stu brings to the bird dog, that's where the magic happens. And that's what people miss with coaching. Um, Coach D was an excellent coach at programming too, but that was arguably not his best attribute. His best attribute was to be able to get after someone's ass right when they needed it and make them feel like there was no barrier holding them back to their own performance. See, you make a really good point there. And I know that both yourself and me, we, we like to program. Like it's something that we sort of got into. Um, we're pretty good at it. We've had some success in that, in that venue of strength and conditioning, but we both spent years on the floor and, and like you're describing, and I, and I think it's, it's something that people forget that you sit down 
all alone in your office and you crank out that program that's basically the fucking Mona Lisa of muscle building in your mind and you get ready and you give it to your athletes on Monday and some are going to do really good right out of the gate and you might as well have <laughs> fucking given somebody Sanskrit based on how they <laughs> respond to your program, right? And, and and that's the part that people forget. And Buddy Morris said this to me one time in 2007 when I was in the Browns. There's the science and then there's the art. And, and what you're saying is really, really accurate. The science is what you did in your office when nobody was around and you cranked out that that masterpiece on paper where you put all the, the muscle groupings together and the sets and reps and the intensities and the variable percentages that are going to elicit a response. But if the motherfucker reads Sanskrit when you hand it to him, you got to find a way to become a Sanskrit translator really quickly. Yes. And that exactly. is the art of coaching that a lot of people don't know. And I think that's the thing that makes online programming so fucking difficult because mm. you just handed out a workout, not realizing that four or five of your clients that you may not get to meet or talk to right away, they don't read Sanskrit. And yep. when you give them that program, no matter how simplistic it may seem on paper or in your, uh, you know, doctorate level programming mind they don't get the success because you don't get Correct. to see them operating within the real time frame of that workout exactly yep and that's why if i had to do it all over again if i knew that my career was going to be primarily online coaching i probably would have got a psych degree too because every every email i send or every every time i answer questions it's like an fbi level interrogation of the client because some some people lie some people underestimate some people overestimate so it's almost like i have to psychoanalyze them first see what kind of person they are and then give the information i have clients that i write programs that i know would bury them if they actually did it you know intensely but i have to overwrite because i know they're you know, they're training like weenies in the gym. Right. And I have other people, I have other people that I know are like chomping at the bit. They go, go hard in the paint for every single workout. And I have to underwrite for them because I know they're always going to do an extra set anyway, even if I don't tell them to. Right. So I just plan, I plan for that. Yeah, it's exactly it. You're, you're going to have the people at Global Gym that do everything that you ask of them and they do it perfect. But Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so is still in the gym when their favorite other person walks in and all of a sudden they're adding like four or five extra movements because they want to stick around, right? Yep. And, and that's yep. the psychology of, of, the, of the fitness world as opposed to the rigid structure of, say, collegiate or professional coaching. Correct. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a rough variable. I know in my own programming – I've used the the rule of 20%. And, and what I have a tendency to do when I'm looking at a program sight unseen or, or people that I'll be coaching sight unseen is I will over-program volume by 20%. Yep. And and it's not a, you know, it's not a perfect bullet shot, right? So like you say, you get Johnny Hardcore and all of a sudden you're overcompensating him 20% because he does everything like a robot. But the vast majority of people have a tendency to come up a touch short and that extra 20% sort of keeps them on track. But it's such a juggling game unless you get to spend time with these people in person. Yeah. 
totally. And I, and I, I, you know, one other thing is just communication. I make sure they're communicating with me. Um, I have a lot of clients send me videos so I can actually see their efforts. Right. You know, it's like, and that's important too, because a lot of times you can tell effort by bar speed. You know what I mean? If it's supposed to be, if it's supposed to be a 10 RM and rep 10 flies up every bit as fast as the first one, you know, then, then I can give them feedback on that. But I agree. It's, it's funny how, you know, similar people arrive at the same thing, but separately. So like I do the same thing. I kind of overwrite at the start. And then if a guy's emailing me after two weeks going, man, I am toast, I'm killed in the gym, then I know I can back it down a little bit. Or if other people are saying, yeah, this is too easy, then I'm like, okay, you need even more volume. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, when we think of guys like famous periodization coaches that maybe some are not familiar with because they don't fucking read books, is a guy like Bondarchuk. So as a former Soviet program director he really broke down the system into three types. And it's funny because you'll see where I'm going with this is he believed that athletes responded to a volume B intensity or a potential Olympic champion responded to both volume and intensity. Now, certain coaches and gurus that have come along after him tried to create the the wheel of five elements right and you had like metal athlete wood athlete fire athlete air athlete you know whatever the fucking alchemy of athletics is and and all it was was a stolen (laughs) yeah it was stolen information based off of bonderchuk's principle but it holds very true because not all athletes will respond to volume training and it's something that I see in in the gym now, and and I've sort of talked about this in the past, and I, and I was really curious to get your take on this, is the movement towards gym memberships almost becoming like a social club where people spend time because that's where they're supposed to be every day at five o'clock, as opposed to going to the gym to manifest this new sense of achievement, a new body, a new psychology, a new goal setting. And instead they're just going in there to punch that second clock for the day. And how do you work around that psychology or can you? Yeah. You know, I'd be lying if I said that I could reach, uh, into the soul of everyone and get them to train hard. Cause that's simply not true, especially remotely. Um, even in person, I mean, even at the NCAA division one level, Every now and then there'd come an athlete that he was, he or she was an incredible athlete, but they just didn't like the gym, you know? Um, and of course I'd be lying if I said I could reach every one of them, but it is generally an issue. Um, and, and I'm not afraid to, if, if, uh, if I get the sense that someone's not a good fit, I, I you know, I'll refund their money and just say, Hey, this isn't going to work. Like, you know, I, I need to work with someone that trains harder or you need to have someone in person to push you. Uh, um, uh, you know, online coaching works best for the self-driven, motivated client or athlete who is familiar with basic gym exercises. Um, I don't take pure newbies because obviously they need to learn technique from someone in person. You can't learn that from a video. Um, right, right. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I tend if I do get someone that's, you know, I have people apply, <clears throat> they, they, have, they have to apply first and then if I get the sense that they might be a good fit and we start working and I realize that they, you know, some people on the questionnaire tell me that they're advanced. And then when you dig into it, you know, it's a 250 pound male 
whose best bench press is 135 pounds for seven. Right. And you're like, okay, maybe you're overestimating your own abilities, you know? Right. So, the the I, illusions of grandeur. Oh, isn't it crazy? But that's all they know. Yeah. You know, and this, this is actually, it's funny. This brings me to another story about myself. Um, I used to, I used to train, you know, before, like in college and like a globo gym, right? Like it was one of those things. And I was the big dog in the gym because I could squat, you know, 315 pounds for five reps. And I was like, because I was the strongest, I didn't know any better. Right. And then the first time I ever set foot in a collegiate weight room, I saw a um, female track and field athlete that weighed 140 pounds squat 365 for five. Right. Like, yeah, it, yeah it for changed, sure. And it completely changed my perspective. And interestingly enough, over the course of the next two months, my squat went up tremendously only because now I had, I knew what was possible, right? Like I knew that I, you know, there was so much more. And so I think a lot of people just aren't exposed to true strength. And so they, they have these barriers in their brain that they're not even aware of. I agree a hundred percent. And I think it's one of the biggest detriments for, a new level trainer, um, you know, some things, geography, uh, whatever can affect this, but that's why it's essential when you're getting into say iron sports or weightlifting as a general statement is not to do it alone all the time. Um, you know, sometimes you, you're stuck in the basement of your house. Like I was at 14 and, and you only had bodybuilding magazines to try to guide you. But if you can get in, you live in an area where you can go into a gym and hopefully not just a global gym where you got a bunch of assholes doing asshole stuff, but you get into, say, one of these more old school gyms where there's probably going to be, a, you know, a balding, you know, 19, or, <laughs> yeah, exactly, 19 or 20% 40-year-old man. He's probably got a fucking uh, barbed wire mid bicep tattoo tribal style tattoo that and a flannel cut off a, a flannel fucking cut off you know he's going to look a little rough he's going to look like a time machine got stuck and somewhere within the first week or two he'll probably come up to you and make some comment that you need to deadlift or squat and yep. the re the odd thing is is if you just took a few minutes to let that old timer um you know, pass some, some wisdom your way, it'll probably save you the next three or four years of figuring it out on your own. Totally. You know, yep. it, it's, it's funny because we're losing that a little bit because what people are, are, are sort of geared towards is the flash, right? The Kardashian style of weightlifting. It's got to look good. It's got to feel good. It's got to, it, it's got to sell. And the reality is, is real progress always happens in the trenches and it always mm -hmm. happens, you know, like let's cut the shit. You're lifting fucking weights. You're replicating manual labor. So if you're replicating manual labor with a scientific purpose, shouldn't you try to replicate blue collar mentalities? Totally. And it's funny, you know, Derek, I had this conversation with Ed Cohn just this last weekend Ed, you know, greatest power lifter of all time. We were talking about how, Instagram. I heard just not to, not to cut you off. I heard Ed Cohn is the only guy that could beat Tom Brady at the Super Bowl. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. All right, keep going. <laughs> but Ed, Ed was saying, and I agree with him. Powerlifting is is 
you know, people are going to be getting injured at astronomical rates now because of Instagram. They feel like they have to post these max lifts week in and week out. When you look at the way Ed trained, he only, he did two meets a year. So he only maxed out twice a year. He would do four training cycles a year. And each training cycle, he would simply just try to get a little bit stronger than the one before. He'd try to make 10 pounds on his lifts each training cycle. So every year he would add in 40 pounds to his lifts, 40 to 60. And he just did that consistently over time. But now you have guys that have to max week in and week out because, you know, you got to please those Instagram followers. Right. Uh, you got to get those likes. And so injuries are just going to build up. You only have so many max lifts in you in your life. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so there's only one Super Bowl a year. You know what I mean? Right. It, yep. And and I think he's he's really drawing a, a clear conclusion to some things because this really segues me into a couple things I want to talk about. And and inevitably it's become a bit of a grill in the room for our generation because we're a little bit older and we remember what it was like when it was a taboo topic. But I was just recently listening to a podcast with Ben Pakalski and Dr. Serrano, and they were talking about the exorbitant fucking testosterone use that non-athletic or non-sport bodybuilders are using on a daily and weekly basis. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, I, as a 41 year old male, I'm fully, uh, fully comfortable talking about the fact that I've been on HRT for a couple years. Um, and my HRT is monitored by, uh, a clinic here in Colorado. And it's somebody that I'm going to have on a future podcast, which I'm excited about. But, you know, I look at what they give me and what they use to say to offset any deficits that I had. And then I find out what these fucking yahoos are using. And, oh, man. and I can talk in depth about the science with you and, and hormone replacement. And we can even get into the weird bodybuilding side. But how much does, you know, the, the thousand milligram, 2000 milligram uh, mentality mess up your world as an online coach? Oh, man, I'll tell you what, it kills it kills me, man. It's it's so hard. It's well, it all masks from this crazy insecurity that people have, uh, and that's why they have to get bigger muscles. It's it's a it's an insecurity thing, and so these guys are taking these astronomical doses. I, you know, I'm on HRT too. I have been since 2000. Let's see, 11 or 12. So yep. uh, probably seven years now, eight years. Uh, oh man, my math sucks. What year is it now? 2018. It's actually okay. 1985 right. flannel shirt. <laughs> ah, right. Man, I must have hit 88 miles per hour in the DeLorean. <laughs> All right, Marty. Uh, anyway, so so my doc has me on 160 uh, milligrams of test a week, mm -hmm. and I feel fucking phenomenal. 160, right? like, exactly. And I feel like I'm a world beater at that dose, right? Like I'm like, I'm like, I feel like an animal in the gym. Sex drives amazing, sleeps good, all this stuff. And then I hear a guy, like, I get a client. Well, I, I'll tell this story. I had a client pass away. Um, Holy shit. A couple, year, couple years ago. Comes to me on his questionnaire. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a judge, but, and I'm not a physician, but I do try to. I don't, I don't give people drug advice on what to do, but I will step in and tell them what not to do if they're doing something stupid, like, right? You'll step in and be like, okay, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but... That is a shitload of stuff. Yeah. Right. So this cat was 
um, I, I get his questionnaire and I ask, you know, I ask him, is, he's, he's not even a thing is he's not even, he wasn't a high level IFBB guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a bodybuilder. He was just a guy that liked to be big. And right, on his questionnaire, right. he was doing he's, two grams, two grams, two, 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 2000 milligrams of testosterone a week, uh, one gram of trenbolone acetate a week. So a now, gram, so, but, now, so now we're at 3000 milligrams of injectables. Oh, yeah, and I'm not done. Holy I'm not shit. done. Uh, three grams of nandrolone deck a week. What? So basically, all, all total, uh, it, it ended up being seven grams a week. Okay. And this guy was 28 years old. And I emailed him back and I said, Hey, man, uh, saw your cycle. Is this a typo? Because if not, we need to have a Skype call like today, like no waiting. And so we talk, and he's like, no, it's not a typo. He's like, I just know my body really well, and that's what I need to grow. And I was like, <laughs> bro, I was like, okay. I was like, I'm, I was like, I'm no doctor. I was like, but you need to like take that way down. I said, do 10% of what you're doing. Literally, take every drug you're doing and take it down to 10%, and then we'll go there. So that's that would still be 700 milligrams of shit a week, which is a ton. Right, and, and, and that's Dr. Serrano in his interview said that he sees 600 milligrams a week is the clinical maximum in his 20 yeah. years of experience that he saw to be an effective dose. Right. And that's for bodybuilders, so, not just for HRT. Totally. Yeah. So this, this guy insists, no, I know my body. I know what I'm doing. Um, and then, and he was a guy, he was diligent about his check-ins. He checked in, you know, twice a week and, and all this stuff. So I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks and I fired an email said, Hey man, hope everything's going well. I haven't heard from you. What's going on? And I get an email three days later. Hey, this is so-and-so's mother. Um, he, uh, unfortunately he passed away. He died of a massive heart attack, like all this Jesus stuff. Christ. It's like, 28 and it's like it's just stupidity he he wasn't earning a financial living from it he wasn't competing at the highest levels he just wanted to be big for no damn reason in a world of false celebrity it's how how can i stand out in a crowd and mm-hmm. you know in the old days and I say the old days like I'm fucking 62, but you know, <laughs> but in the old days, you stood out in a crowd by what you could provide to society. Mm-hmm. And now people are standing out in a crowd by how many likes an image gets that will only be viewed potentially for two to four seconds. Yep. And totally. You know, there's a song out right now, and and, and I can't remember who sings it. I'm not going to get into all that because that's not my strength. And it's uh, the song has a lyric, and it says, if you can't make me famous, make it painless. And that, to me, really, really sums up the current reality uh, of what I'm seeing in the fitness industry. It's um, in a, It bothers me because... For me, like I, I started as a kid reading bodybuilding magazines. That was the information and, and I really enjoyed it. But I remember when people would talk about cycles in bodybuilding magazines in the nineties and like Andre Munzer, when he died, um, they posted his anabolic cycle. And in my opinion, that was sort of the beginning of the end of what you would probably think of as conservative or health-related doses being used for physical composition. Um, You know, people would see these, you know, extraordinary doses on extraordinary-looking physiques and then be like, okay, 
if I'm only 185 pounds and I want to be 298 pounds stage ready, okay, if this guy is using 1,500 milligrams a week as an IFBB pro, then I'm going to have to use 7,000. Yeah, and it killed exactly. and it fucking killed him. Yep. Right. And and, and you can and, say what you want, but he's gone. Right. So somebody should be mm-hmm. responsible for that misinformation. Agree, a hundred percent. You know, and obviously the, the personal accountability accountability piece needs to be there. He did it to himself yep. against yep. advice from his own coach. But like, holy cow! Like, just like what had to happen in his life that there was that level of insecurity? Because here's the harsh reality: outside of this industry which really isn't that big no one cares how big or ripped you are they really don't uh you may get a comment oh man you're huge but no one really actually cares <laughs> so it's like listen have some have some damn self-confidence be you like listen <laughs> i don't know hairy burger eating fat guys get their dick sucked too right <laughs> and feeling that right and oh, and i yeah. you know and people don't want to believe that but it's true a sense of humor will last longer than your body ever will. And, yep. it, and confidence. And confidence. It, it's providing something. You know what? <laughs> i tell you what. You want to be successful with your girlfriend or your wife? Take 30 seconds every single day and just tune in to them in the morning and be like, this person has been with me from A to B. And remind yourself of that every day and make sure they know it. And trust me, all that other stuff starts to fade away. You know better than anyone. You've been married. You got a family, totally. right? It's totally. it's all fleeting. It's all fleeting. Um, you know, it, it, and it's sad to think that people are so desperate for that attention. But on the other side of that coin, with the incredible use of of performance enhancement aids, we're also getting a little bit of a breakthrough in terms of potential health benefits, almost through osmosis. And that's something that I've become really interested in. I know you've had a shitload of surgeries, four on your shoulders, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, a possible hip in your future, but let's not, <laughs> let's not dwell yeah. on that. Yeah. But <laughs> what, what about things? And, and this is something that I think is really interesting. The evolution of peptides both yes. bioregulation Russian peptides that go way back and the new generation of HGH releasing peptides that are more anti-aging, et cetera. Um, what has been your experience with peptides and as well as Tremel, the injectable? Because I know that you've worked with surgeons that have integrated both of those into your surgeries. Yeah. You know, I had, I had, uh, I was very fortunate that um, one of my surgeries was done, actually two of them were done by um, a friend of mine. He was a, he was a guy that I know and he was an outstanding orthopedic surgeon for athletes. And for one of my shoulder things, I was like, basically I was getting it scoped. He was doing a uh, sub acromial um, decompression and a distal clavicular excision. So basically just making more room around the shoulder. And so I had, I had a little bit of, um, a little bit of minor tears in the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. So he was just making some room and, I just asked him, I said, Hey, you know, I saw some research on intraarticular growth hormone during surgery along with PRP. Like, what are your thoughts? And he's like, well, he's like, if you want to try it, we can absolutely do it. He's very, very cool. You know, he hadn't really did the research on it, but he was like, ah, if you've looked at it, cool, let's give it a whirl. So, uh, during surgery, he, um, put in 15 IUs of somatropin HGH, and then, uh, a big, 
a big dose of PRP as well. And when I came back for my first visit, so just to no hold sp- you, just to hold oh, you right yeah, there, sorry. just for clarification, the PRP for people that aren't really familiar with that, that's platelet-rich plasma, right? Yes, so, yes. So they drew out some of your blood, they spun it in a centrifuge, and then they put that back into your body. Is that correct? Roughly, yeah. Correct? So okay, cool. sorry, yeah, the, I, I should have explained that better. But the PRP, the platelets can help regenerate um, healing basically. Right. So, so, and, and it's, it's synergistic with human growth hormone. So doing the two together can provide more healing. Cool. Um, anyway, I was supposed to be in a sling for eight weeks. And when I went back for my first post-op visit five days after surgery with no sling, his jaw hit the floor. He's like, I've never seen, um, anyone heal that rapidly. Right. Um, and so he started doing it with his other patients. Now, the catch-22 that I'll warn people about with that is that I did technically heal faster, but that also meant that I was back to doing stupid shit faster. Right, because <laughs> we, were, we were working together at this time, correct? Right, yep. right, right. And, and I was so shocked I got back. at your mobility. I was shocked. Yes. Um, so I came back quicker, but then I think, you know... It's hard to say without knowing, but I think ultimately I got to training too hard too quickly. Mm-hmm. What I would, if I had to do it over again, what I would have done would have been I would still would have done the GH and PRP, but then I still would have waited the full recommended amount for physical therapy before mm-hmm. I got back to the heavy stuff. Right. I mean, I was I, I was benching again probably at like four weeks post op, and that's oh. you know usually it's sixteen weeks or more sure. for a shoulder. So I think I I probably rushed the back end of rehab. And that's my own fault. Um, what was but, the consequences of that? You know, the consequences was I had some disrupted motor patterns. So anytime, so in surgery, that in a shoulder surgery, they dislocate your shoulder mm-hmm. to get access to the joint. Right. And what that does, that disrupts the, the motor patterns of all the, the musculature around the shoulder joint. So the shoulder joint is extremely complex. You have the movement of the scapula as well as the movement of the humerus, and it's controlled by all the muscles around it. I believe uh, there's 16 different muscles that affect shoulder movement. Right. And so uh, in the early phases of, really the whole phase of the rehabilitation, it's all about getting the timing back in those muscles. So in my opinion, what I think happened to me is the t- soft tissue healed, but I hadn't allowed enough time to get the motor patterns back. And so I think I started lifting with faulty motor patterns too quickly. And so uh, that, that's my, that, and that was my own fault. Sure. Totally. The eagerness to get back to where you were. And, totally. And you know, it's funny because we see that a lot right now um, in the industry because people aren't getting a lot of the fundamentals. Um, you know, we talk about this to death over the years, but the movement versus muscle groups. Um, mm-hmm. People forget that you need both, that when you're coming back from an injury, movement is where you get to, muscle is how you get there. Um, And what ends up happening is when we come through rehab phases, and we're seeing it a lot with CrossFit and some more of the big movement groups where they don't know the fundamental movement patterns that affect isolated muscle. So, you know, because they don't learn it, right? So when they started working out, they started working out on snatches pull-ups, cleans, etc. And and there is a long-term phase that you need to go through where you reestablish individual muscle function like you're saying, which allows you the ability to to move big again at some point. Yes. 
Um, yes. And you know what? The opposite is also true, uh, Derek. The opposite where, and you see this in the bodybuilding community or people yes. that lock themselves on machines, they'll do biceps, they'll do their curls, and they train everything individually. And then they end up injured because they have no ability to integrate through the core. So, like, there's an exercise that I used to laugh at. I used to make fun of people that did it. I'm like, huh, Turkish get up. What kind of what kind of fruitcake exercise is that? Get a kettlebell and stand up and sit down with it. Right. So stupid. However, I have come to appreciate the fact that it is one of the most valuable exercises in the weight room because the only thing that integrates you from foot all the way through the shoulder. Um, and, and you have to have a rigid core. You, you almost can't do it improperly, right. you know? So it's, it, cause if you, if you're making some type of compensation, you won't be able to stand up. And so, um, it's one of the most valuable exercise. I love it for like warm up or something, but I see a lot of people that just do the bodybuilding that end up with some funky motor patterns, probably because they lose the ability to integrate. So it goes both ways. Yes. Um, you have, you have the, the people that use movements that get injured because they don't know how to isolate muscles and you have the isolation specialists that don't know how to integrate. So it's like, you got to include it all in the program at some point. It doesn't have to be all at the same time. It may be phasic or it could be all at the same time, but you, you can't neglect those things. That's exactly it. And I think that people, you know, cause someone sent me a really interesting comment yesterday through social media and I'd been talking about my programming and, and what have you. And their response was, the reason why a lot of people have become very skeptical of programming is because they have not had the long-term success with, you know, uh, cookie cutter program A, B, or C. And some of the mm-hmm. examples they were using were really famous Olympic lifting coaches and their systems and, you know, or someone like Jim Wendler's 531. And they're like, you know, I, I stopped having success because of whatever reason after so many months. And, and it's funny because what people forget is that everything is continuum based. So when you start doing something with the body, the pattern has to evolve. And not only does the patterns evolve, but what people forget is you have to reset those patterns every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And you have to... so. You know, if you're if you're going for a max squat, say that max squat is 500 pounds, and you're progressing and progressing and progressing, and then you just stall out. The current mentality, um, as Ed Cohen would say, would be to keep doing singles until you blow up, um, because people don't pay attention. Whereas the real or proper methodology would be to take a break from the pursuit of those heavy loads and go all the way back to reestablishing pattern and function for a little while so, yep. so that you can get this new increase of strength. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with training one leg at a time to make your one RM back squat go through the roof, but people, it, it's not fucking exactly. sexy, right? It, you can't go into global yep. gym and get eye boners from everybody doing one legged shit. <laughs> Well, speak for yourself, Derek, because I get a lot of eye boners at Globo Gym with my single leg work. No, you're absolutely right. People, you lose track. Well, it's, it's uh, uh, we could talk about boners too. Looking uh, up if you want. P- PR, uh, <laughs> peptide induced boners. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a peptide for that, actually. There's some good stuff out there. Um, it's a change no, in but, world, man. <laughs> we need to get back to peptides because there are some cool stuff. Yes. One thing I'll say is just, uh, it's hard because. Let's. I got a buddy, and he's he. His goal is he wants a six hundred pound deadlift, and he's um, 
he's a he's a strong guy. He's he weighs typically around 200 pounds. So 600 would be a triple body weight dead. And he does a lot of metabolic work too. Like he's yeah. a metabolic just machine. So if I, I tell him all the time, I'm like, dude, just spend eight weeks and cut out your metabolic shit and just do a powerlifting cycle and you'll break your 600. But he likes to bring everything up together, which is awesome. But anyway, he, he took a stab. He was going to take a run at 600 and he got real close. Um, but then, you know, didn't quite get it. And uh, what a lot of people do is, like you said, they'll keep doing the singles. But he had the maturity to back down, take the weight back down in the low 400s right. and just start push, pushing the volume in that 400 range. And because that's going to build your base. Vol- like weight training is not that complicated. Unfortunately, we have no. That, yeah. It's not. And I, I hate to say it because it's my industry. I want to I want people to think that I'm smart and I have all this information that they don't have. But the honest truth is weight training and nutrition, it's all fucking simple. But the people that make it complicated um, are the ones that ruin it for everybody else. But for weight training, it's like it's volume. You know what I mean? Like volume is one of the primary stimuli. Right. Maximal recoverable volume you have to be able to recover from it but it's like if you want to get really like if you bench 400 now and you can do 275 for three sets of 10 if you want to bench 500 you got to get your sets of 10 up first be able to do 365 365 for five sets of 10 before you go to your next strength phase right and it's like that's your volume base and then you progress from there you know and it's There's so much simplicity. I always tell people, you know, there's all kinds of training programs and protocols, but uh, when when I'm doing consults with people and they get kind of confused because of all the different programmings, I always tell them to step back and say, imagine all I did was give you a barbell and you could only ever do three exercises. Right. How would you get stronger? And when you boil it down to that and you remove all the variables of bands and chains and different exercises and all that and just take it down to its bare roots you can only do three exercises with the barbell how do you get stronger and if you can visualize and put down on paper a way to get stronger that way you have training mastered and then you can start adding in the variations and the tempos and the rest periods and all that but keep it simple yeah that's exactly true and and tempo is a good example of that because we know full well from our past that that was literally a sales gimmick for an entire book, uh, right? Yep. Uh, Tempo sold book after book after book in the early 2000s to about 2009 or 10. Um, and what people don't realize is Tempo is also just a byproduct of intensity. Yep. So if the intensity on the on the lift goes up, and and for those that are just tuning in, intensity is not your fucking fortitude of energy it is the percentage of your one rm so just a little little viewers note about intensity like yeah. uh, he was so intense he was always operating at 100 so um but what people forget is that as you push towards that one repetition intensity maximum the bar slows down And the only other place to slow a bar down is to purposefully slow it down at the other end of the paradigm or the other end uh, of the sequence. So really, the only two places, in my opinion, to properly integrate purposeful tempo is the byproduct of heavy lifting, 
the tempo is going to establish itself. And, and correct me if you disagree for sure. And the other side is in prehab rehab, where you're purposefully controlling tempo on both eccentric and concentric phases of the movement because you're trying to elicit a, a response from the tissue. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. I, for me, t- tempos, I tell people, because uh, I do prescribe tempos, but I tell people don't get caught up in counting. If you're fucking yes. counting to yourself, then you, you're missing the point. The idea is like slow, medium, fast. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of it, exactly. and, and typically typically I will always do like a 2-0-X-O or 3-0-X-O for most movements. The only other time I'll change it is if I want to spend time in a specific range. So pause squats. Maybe yes. someone, uh, they look beautiful in the squat, but then they shit the bed at the bottom out of the hole. Okay. Yep. We'll, we'll do a 2-2-X-O squat so you can spend some more time down there. But yeah, other than that, like I always crack up when people, the Pollock clones, I call them. Yep. Uh, people that only listen to Charles Pollockwin and that's it. Charles is great. Yeah, you know, we can debate about him all day long and talk about him, but that's not what this is about. Anyway, the Pollock clones will tell you that to maximally hypertrophy, you need to do uh, 10 repetition, 10 to 12 reps at a 4-0-1-0 tempo in the right. squat with 60 seconds rest. And I'm like, so basically you want me to use no weight at all. Right. Um, you know, it's like, that just means you're weak. That's <laughs> all that. Means. It means like, you're weak. You're and, make- and, yeah. and the argument against that, even though it's not really my school of thought, but the argument against it is the ridiculous hypertrophy that the CrossFit games competitors now carry. Yes. And, and we, can, we can talk about the drugs and peptides because we know they exist there, but they exist everywhere. So let's remove the variable and just look at what's happening. So it goes back to your comment. So you can look at time under tension in terms of one rep, okay? So the tension on the muscle for one rep. But what about the argument that time under tension is also equated to total volume of work? Yep. Because the, the entire workout, the entire workout, the entire month, and the entire year. So if you look at somebody's training volume, say a CrossFitter that's really hypertrophied, you're like, holy shit! In in the year 2017, he or she was under tension, even if the reps are all Olympic lifting or kipping this or kipping that things that he, I don't recommend. But okay, so that's what they're doing. Well, they were still under tension for this many hours of that year. Yeah. How yeah. many hours well, were you under tension in a bicep curl, right? Like, yeah, it's, exactly. a, it's an interesting argument. Well, I'll make it simple. Hypertrophy, again, I'm, uh, the, more, the deeper I get in my career, the more I lean towards simplicity. Yep. Hypertrophy is honestly the number of pounds that you can lift in a week and still recover from. And that should that number should go up month to month. That's ah, really all it is. Very good. It's like you, you're trying to achieve a certain amount of density of work within the training week, and the more volume you can accumulate while still recovering, and that's the key element. It, the bigger you're going to get. You can't right. tell me that you know if you can squat 225 for four sets of ten, and you push that up to 405 for four sets of ten and you can still recover, you can't tell me you're not going to be bigger. It, and, you know, there's still, there's the activation piece too. Sure. Like, you know, the bodybuilders are talking a lot about, you know, going slow to, ma- to maximize muscle activation. There's some merit in that. But at the end of the day, uh, activation aside, it's volume. It, it's Milo and the bull, right? Mm-hmm. As yep. the bull got bigger, so did Milo. And when you think of it in terms of that, it, it does, like you say, again, make strength and conditioning become very simplistic. And, People don't always like simplistic 
because that also puts the onus back on them that over the course of the next year, it is expected that their five sets of 10 in the bench press will go from 225 to 285. And yep. that changes some psychological dynamics. It changes, <laughs> you know, it changes the fact that they can't fuck off. They have to show up every Tuesday for that workout. It changes the dynamics that, oh, God forbid they have to take some rest days to maximize yes. their growth. Exactly. And now all of a sudden that's why the social club that's gets why. fucked up. That's why I say the maximal volume that you can recover from, and I've been guilty of this too, I'll push volume just because I know volume makes you bigger, but then if you're not recovering, you just end up getting injured. And so some people, if they bust ass, may only be able to recover from three to four hard sets of squats in a week. That's just the harsh reality. Right. Not 10 sets. Right. You know, if you go, if you go I mean, balls out one set of 20 with a true, truly hard 20 weight, it's like... Yeah, that's hard to recover from, you know? <laughs> well, people forget that if you're still suffering from severe DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness and you're trying to train that muscle group again, you've already made your first mistake, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and those are inflammatory markers that are signaling to your brain that you're hurt. And yep. that injury... Um, although I think we both can agree, you don't always have to get sore to get big and you don't always have to get sore to get strong, but it does happen and it happens when you're training hard and, or if there's a new introduction to stimulus that you're not used to. So when you look at it that way, what ends up happening is you're training an injury. And if you're always training an injury, you're just prolonging recovery restoration. Exactly. You know? Hundred percent. So, one a couple things I just wanted to close out with while I while I got your full attention is I wanted to talk about two things in particular um, before we go today. One, um, I wanted to talk about the Viper Pit because that's something that you started doing on Facebook to yep. sort of reach out to people and get them seen and understanding not just information based on fat loss solutions, which was a book that you wrote a number of years ago that was really a, a good book for people, but also showing them the proper way to apply exercises. And so that's the mm -hmm. first thing I want to talk about. And then I wanted to end today just with your sort of transcendence into fascial stretch therapy and your movement towards getting people out of pain. Okay. Yeah. So the Viper Pit was born... <laughs> Basically, it's it's my garage. Uh, I finished it, insulated it, drywalled it, painted all that shit, um, and got all my gym equipment there. It's um, it, I, I love putting out content for people because I love helping people. Uh, but honestly, I hate marketing. And yeah. in the past, I've linked up with some people to try to help me with marketing. And as much as I've tried to say, hey, like I want this to be honest, I want this to be real. You know, copywriters always creative liberties, and it would end up. You know, fat loss solution was great, but it ended up the same BS that you see everywhere else in terms of the marketing. And I wasn't comfortable with that. I want to be real with people. There is no magic bullet. You know what I mean? Like right. my, my, I think my programs are awesome, but they're not the magic bullet and you have to put tremendous effort into it. It's not going to be easy. There's no hooks. And so that's kind of where Viper came from. It's, it stands for volume, intensity, periodized athletic recomposition, nice. which is, you know, it's one of those things because those are the things I think are important. I like to, 
you know, I like to, as much as possible, retain some degree of athleticism while training people as well. And so um, that's what, and it allows me to put out content that's basically, you know, because I enjoy bodybuilding, I enjoy powerlifting, Olympic lifting, sprinting, and so, and the nutrition and fat loss side of things. So that's kind of what my channel's for. Um, and that's all it is at this point. It's a channel. Um, I'm not selling anything really through it at the moment, although people do contact me for, for training or consults, but for the most part, it's just free content. Right. Um, and, and then, so that's, that's the Viper pit. And then the fascial stretch therapy, it was one of those things. Um, <clears throat> I heard about it many years ago, um, probably back in 2006 and had heard great things about it. Always wanted to take it. And an opportunity came for me to head out to Arizona and take the level one. And I thought about it and with, with 90% of my business being online, um, I'm at a, I'm at a computer all day, right? right? Like right, I'm in front sure. and I'm, t- I'm doing emails, I'm doing Skypes. And, um, as nice as that is, I am a people person and I missed a lot of that, you know, adult human interaction. I also have a three-year-old girl at home, um, that we spend a lot of time together, but I, I wanted to be in front of people and I realized that this was a good opportunity. And so, um, I went out and took the course and it was pretty incredible. I started treating people here back at home and it's a really unique therapy um uh it's just it makes so much sense it's, it doesn't replace anything else it definitely doesn't replace massage right or chiropractic or physical therapy but it absolutely complements it and so i'm currently um i've been i've got several physicians and chiropractic offices that we have kind of a referral thing set up where they're sending me patients so based on how insurance works in the u.s right it's really, really hard to get good care. You know, they can only bill for, you know, 15 minutes at a time, whereas some, some issues simply need time. And so that's kind of what I sell when I meet with these chiropractors and these physical therapists. I say, look, I'm not replacing you. I'm here to do things that are essentially below your pay grade. Because let's be honest, if you're trying to address a joint capsule, the number one thing you need is time. Right, right. If you're only, if you're, because it takes time to get it to relax and loosen up. And so, if you're only able to bill for 15 minutes, you got to do the high dollar stuff. You got to do those grade five uh, chiropractic thrusts. You got to do the joint manipulation. Uh, let me do the capsule stuff. You guys work on the big stuff. And so um, they've really embraced it. And so I've got a little referral network here going in Cincinnati. And it's just it's one of those things. I don't need the business. It's not um, it's not something I needed to do. I just wanted to do it, and I find that I'm enjoying it a lot. So. Um, it's almost yeah. like your ability to actually give back, right? Because yes. your experiences as a coach, your experiences as an athlete that eventually got injured a little bit like myself, you realize that along the path of figuring all those things out, you're like, man, I took some wrong turns. Or, you know, when I hit this point in the road, I really wish that somebody could have fixed this tire before it blew out, right? Exactly. Um, and when you, you know, it's really the one of the major reasons that I went back to therapy school as well. And although I've never taken uh, FST as a, a cert, I've been fortunate enough to be treated by some of the best that the certification has produced, um, mm-hmm. you know, like some of the original people. So I got introduced to it really early as well. And, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it it's really important that you understand. And I'll give you my honest opinion because I'm not certified, so I'm not selling it is as a therapist myself, I compare FST to really good deep tissue 
if the FST therapist is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I found when I was, was, uh, worked on, um, and released with FST is it's, it's nice because I can get on the table in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. I could do it in the middle of a mall. And as long as my balls aren't hanging out, nobody cares. Right. <laughs> so it, it, it's not this process. You go in, it, it's, it's more clinical than soft tissue therapy. So you can do it a lot more gorilla style in more environments. And if the FST therapist is good, in my opinion, you get more release through the fascial systems of the, of the major joints. I know I did than an hour worth of deep tissue therapy. Because I find that it, we need movement along with the release of the fascial tissue, in my opinion, to get the nervous system to accept the change. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is shifting from a sympathetic dominant fight or flight state to a more parasympathetic relaxed state. And it's, it's versatile and it can be done in a lot of environments. Like I've done it in a doctor's office, you know, with patients, but I've also, um, in a couple of weeks, there's a there's a big CrossFit event coming up, and yep. I'll be on the provider the 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 provider staff for the athletes that day. So it's like Perfect. you can do it in the middle of a gym, or you can do it behind closed doors. Really, whatever you want to do. And, and have you mm. noticed from uh, a practitioner standpoint that FST doesn't seem to shut down performance as much as say static stretching? Oh, it doesn't shut it down at all. In fact, it it really enhances it. Um, I wish I had someone close by that could do it on me. <laughs> That's kind of the Correct. the uh, the therapist plight, right? Yep. As a massage therapist, you can't deep tissue yourself. Um, it's like being same, the only mechanic in a two person town, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it it actually can. It, there's different ways to do it, but there's a game day version of it that is actually used to kind of ramp up. So right. you're increasing flexibility as you are shifting more to the fight or flight to prepare you for the aggressions and rigors of competition. Man, that's fascinating. And I think it's a huge benefit that people like yourself who come from the athletic side are getting into the therapy side. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it helps too, because I'll take people that come in and, and, uh, you know, we'll work, we'll do FST, but then we'll train and they'll, you know, we can solidify and lock in those gains and range of motion and, and neural tone and all those things. So absolutely. Well, we've come to the end of our time and I just want to thank you, but before we go, is there anything that you wanted to hit on just for people that want more information, even about Viper, about you as a coach, about FST that you're doing in your home near Cincinnati, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, because I'm, I'm like anti-marketing, I want to be like word of mouth only. I don't even have a fucking website. Uh, but if you, if you want to contact me, you can reach me at athletic fitness consulting at hotmail.com. How like, how like 90s is that? Hotmail, right? That like, is fantastic. <laughs> um, and then on Facebook and YouTube, um, Viper, V I P A R. Um, and yeah, that's where you can reach me if you need me. Awesome. So I'm going to put a uh, athletic fitness consulting. And that was Hotmail, correct? Correct. Hotmail. So, so were you grandfathered into Hotmail? How old is that account? It w- oh, it's so old. It, it's it's yeah, it's it's really old. That <laughs> you actually might you might have shares in the company. You might want to check into that. Yeah, the only thing would be older is if it was an AOL instant message email address. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, my brother still has a Hotmail account as well. It's uh, 
you have them for so long that you can't get rid of them because if you do, no. you'll regret it. Well, everybody, every that's how everyone gets a hold of me. So it's like, if if I never want to hear from my family again, then sure, I'll switch to Gmail or something. But <laughs> don't do it, man. You got to stay with Hotmail. You got yeah. to. Oh, I will. All right, totally so will. I'm going to put that into the uh, show notes. And again, as always, Ryan, it's been awesome having you, especially as the first guest ever for Ecobolic Radio. Um, man, I, I can't thank you enough. I know that you will be someone that will be a consistent provider. In my opinion, this was like an iceberg conversation. You know, there is a mountain of information that you have that I've got to experience over, you know, a couple dinners in the UK or a drink or two that goes far, far beyond what we discussed today. So I hope that the people yeah, realize, you. yeah, how much more we're going to get into. For sure. Well, you know what? Maybe next time we'll talk about, let's talk about weed and peptides. Weed and peptides. In fact. <laughs> and hookers. And hookers. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> they all go together <laughs> you know they do you know they really do and that's the worst part you can't have a comeback if anyone ever says weed hookers and peptides you sort of just have to go with it because it's coming from experience <laughs> <laughs> yes but awesome. yeah thanks that, for having me man. absolutely i really look forward to having you back on thank you for listening to ecobolic radio for more information about upcoming guests and episodes Please follow Derek Woodsky on his Instagram or at DerekWoodsky.com. 